Message from the Cast This is not a word-for-word rendition of Tempest in a Teacup by A.K.A. Vertigo. Please feel free to read the original fic along with us, but keep in mind that we have made necessary changes to accommodate the needs of a living and breathing audio experience. This is performed in the spirit of the source material, but with the recognition that necessary changes have been made. Thank you for listening. It's the little things that hurt the most. The scent of lemon in the sheets, its faint presence of comfort and care lessening. Red thread on a black sleeve. I ran out of black. Can you believe it? A slim brush found tucked into a history roll. Because I like to remember which era I left off at. Patches of silk tape on the map. Just keeping track of where's the what. The aftertaste of saffron. Don't be so picky. It's good for you. It will pass. Zuko doesn't look up from the teacup in his hands. There's nothing truly unusual about the object, aside from the odd color of the bamboo shoots painted on it. It used to have a matching twin, equally blue and odd, but it broke two years ago. The cup now in front of him was brought in after he threw the first against the wall, angry, hurt, and wanting her to run. Instead, she'd shouted back, warning him not to break the second because it was her favorite. In the end, no matter how strongly he raged, Katara had not left him. When will it pass? Another week? Another month? Another year? Another seven years? When? The Elder shifts creakily, a silent reference to old bones and cold nights. And the fact now that there is no gentle brown hand to help ward off the growing chill with hot tonics or leafy brews. She would not wish to see you this way, Prince Zuko. No, Zuko thinks she wouldn't. She would frown and joke and cajole and finish stitching fish on the collar and raise her voice to sing or scold and bite her lip and quirk her brows and tap her brush against her cheek and win two games out of three and say tomorrow was on its way. So come on, Zuko, let's go. Trust me. But Katara is gone and a thousand things remain unsaid. The boy looks like Katara. It's an unsettling similarity. The war paint, the bared teeth, the club and the cropped hair paired with blue eyes, brown skin, rounded face, wood-thick hair. But it doesn't prevent Zuko from kicking him face-first into the snow, 
The kick is precise, controlled, but fueled by more force than necessary. Zuko is not feeling gentle. Actually, Zuko is trying very, very hard not to feel anything at all. He finishes walking down the platform. The tribe watches him with fear in their blue eyes. Dimly, Zuko notes that their women and children, no men, no warriors, and steels his mind against caring. He will not offer reassurance to placate their dread. His uncle would, he knows, but Iroh remains behind in the ship at Zuko's request. Because facing these people is something Zuko must do alone. The decision to return has been living in him, mute, for over two months, surfacing only when they finally began, again, to sail south. Two months is enough to heal broken ribs. Two months is enough to repair a storm-damaged ship. But it's nowhere near enough to kill the taste of blood and salt in his mouth or the memory of her laughter. Two months, Zuko thinks, surveying the blue-eyed women and the dark-skinned children, is not enough for this. No matter, he is here. He has a mission. I'm looking for the Avatar. Blank eyes peer at him. A wrinkled woman, the oldest in the crowd, is the only one to openly meet his glare. Her eyes are inscrutable. If you have any information on his whereabouts, past or present, talk. The sooner you do, the sooner we leave. Unsurprisingly, it is the hag who answers. There is nothing for you here, Firebender. Leave. Now. He wants to. Oh, how he wants to. He wants to get back aboard his ship and flee the barren tundra and its unforgiving wind, its suffocating ice, the long plains of sheer damn freezing nothing. He wants to go away and never think about this place again, never see it on a map, never have to remember the life-leeching suck of the arctic air or hear a casual mention of its existence in the world. He hates every snowflake in sight. Because there is nothing for here except what he must do, Zuko must pressure and demand, yell and blaze, until they lay their stories at his feet. He must become the warning, the nightmare in armor, a copy of what Katara feared and loathed, a monster. This is his current role, the ugly method by which he may reclaim his life, and it is all there is. The knowledge simmers to a boil inside him, spilling over and out in a gush of fire. Children shriek, their mothers pulling them close, huddling. One of them, a gap-toothed girl with coiled braids on either side of her head, trips running away and bursts into tears. She stares at Zuko with wet, frightened eyes the color of diluted ink. The fire vanishes. Zuko digs his nails out of his palms. The pain is insignificant and starts to turn around. Enough is enough. Behind him, he hears a yell and reflex overrides sorrow to shift Zuko gracefully out of harm's way. The boy again, Zuko thinks. 
moron. A hard kick sends the brat flying, but the peasant rolls to his feet with surprising, if unimpressive, speed and pulls out a boomerang to throw. Zuko tilts his neck a paltry fraction to the side, and the crude weapon spins uselessly past. Clumsy backwater peasant couldn't even aim proper. Hey! Helmet askew and ears ringing from the unexpected blow, Zuko feels the last fragile tethers over his temper, and all it covers, snap with a savage, irrational surge of heat. Zuko raises a closed fist toward the boy and thinks of fire. A snowball hits Zuko's cheek. Seething, he wipes the stinging slush out of his eye, his bad eye, and spins around, vaguely noticing the new wave of fear crashing through the peasant boy's face. Yet the fear is not directed at Zuko, but at... at... oh, spirits above and below... Zuko doesn't believe in miracles. Katara did. Throughout the course of their childhood, she was constantly ferreting impossible happenings, reading and memorizing every tale of wonder, magic, or supernatural description that floated within reach. Zuko was never sure where she got them all, or worse, why she insisted on sharing them with him, despite his solid refusal to acknowledge any interest in the nonsense. They're not real, he'd explain with elaborate, but quickly dwindling patience. It's all just tricks and ignorance. Things like that don't just happen, he told her. She remained unfazed. Just because you've never seen something, she'd spit back, doesn't mean it can't or won't ever happen. Wait and see. One day something absolutely, totally amazing will happen right in front of you, Prince Zuko, and you'll believe you will. He does. Because here he is, sixteen and cynical and cold and exhausted and more amazed than he's ever been in his life. And there she is, fourteen and blue-eyed and surprised and alive. Alive. She's alive. Katara? She nods unsmiling. Bewildered, Zuko starts to take a step forward. To what? Reach for her? Touch her? Make sure this is real and not another dream readying to become a nightmare? Katara! Get away from him! Don't come nearer, you Fire Nation bastard! I'll- I'll kill you if you touch her! Zuko considers how far and how hard he'll have to punt the fool to silence him, and why the peasant's snarls make Katara flinch but she doesn't glance in the idiot's direction when she speaks. Shut up, Sokka. He's not here. Who? The Avatar. He's not here. Right. The Avatar. Zuko forces himself to remember the shape of the world around them. The mission... The soldiers at his side and the tribe at her back? The ship? The vertigo of the moment increases when Katara leans around him and waves a gloved hand at the firebenders. One of them shakily waves back. Maybe this isn't a dream after all. Maybe he's simply gone mad. 
But then she closes the distance between them, puts a snow-dusted hand on his arm. He remembers the snowball. Zuko? And then he doesn't care about being mad or asleep or anything outside of this moment. You were right about miracles. Something in her eyes softens, almost sad. But before he can catch its meaning, Katara turns away. Can you give me a moment to say goodbye? He waits. It doesn't take long. The old woman from before clasps Katara's face between her crooked hands, pulling the girl close to kiss both cheeks. In return, Katara hugs her tightly, face momentarily lost in the furry collar of the elder's parka. Others also crowd around the girl, each bestowing a loving touch. The little girl with the tooth gap begins to cry again. Katara kneels, removing her gloves, and smooths the child's tears away with naked hands. Zuko watches it all without shying. They love her. Of course, how could they not? She is one of them, one of their blue-eyed, dusky-skinned own, and she is Katara. The last part especially makes her absurdly, maddeningly easy to love. Two months is enough for the densest fool to realize this. The boy, Sokka, does not bid goodbye with a soft touch or kiss. He shouts, waving his arms, and glares murder at Zuko. Outwardly, Zuko does not respond. Inside, he wonders at the strength of the boy's reaction, the nature and cause of its motivation and how many punches it would take to pound the barbarian's head three feet deep into the snow. Katara buries her face in the boy's shoulder, and Zuko sees the youth's anger crumble into helplessness. They wrap their arms around each other, a matching pair, sharing whispers too soft to overhear. Zuko tastes a thread of salt in his mouth, and realizes he is biting his cheek. Take care of Aang, and be careful. You too. He pauses to glare at Zuko. Don't do anything dangerous, Katara. I'll be fine, Sokka. Just trust me. Let's go. He nods and leads them back into the ship. The position prevents him from knowing whether she does or does not look back. Promise me, you won't hurt them. This is the first thing she says to him when they are alone. Zuko stares at her, standing across his room, when she'd usually be sitting close, holding herself still with a firm grip on either elbow, and tries to figure who he's looking at. Because Katara, his Katara, would never ask him this. I have no reason to hurt them. She flinches. 
I mean, why would you think I'd do such a thing? Against women and children? Guiltily, he remembers the fear on the nut-brown faces, but pushes the thought aside. That was necessary, and only for intimidation purposes. She should know this. Has he become like the image of the monsters in her nightmares? Something within him, Zuko knows, would not survive the transformation. After a moment, Katara nods, and Zuko feels a fist unclench inside him. He recognizes the relaxed swell of her lip as understanding. I don't think you would. I know you wouldn't. But I need to hear you say it. Because it is your tribe, your people. Because in their eyes, I am the enemy. I promise, Katara. Thank you. Who is she, this stranger before him? Zuko doesn't recognize her. The shape is different, outlined and tapered by the foreign cut of unfamiliar blue clothes, the slim long tunic and tight sleeves. Her face has new dimensions in it, framed by the twin thin locks of dark hair and the pull of the thick braid down her back. She is taller, thinner, darker, older, shorter, harder. Something. Something is different now. Something has changed. Did you find people you knew? Uh, no. Y your family? You were young when you left, or were taken, or when... She turns away partly, becoming an indecipherable profile against the sheet of candlelight on his wall. Her skin is like bronze. Perhaps silence was a safer position. I... I found my grandmother. Oh, and Sokka, of course. Of course. Sokka? My brother. He's the oldest boy left in the tribe. Everybody older left two years ago to help. To fight. My father was among them. The rest... Let's just say there were less people than I remember. Anyway, it's not like kids are good at keeping track. My memories were probably shoddy to begin with. Zuko has seen her memorize a dynasty worth of titles in a week. Katara's memory has never been anything less than proficient. Why the effort to pretend otherwise now? Talk to me, please. Show me what you're trying to hide. I'm here. Trust me. And Aang? A another brother? No. A guarded look veils her gaze, warning him about asking the wrong question. A friend. A very young, very kind friend. Zuko remembers the score of children huddling back from him. 
Were you treated well? They welcomed you? They were kind. They did everything they could for me, really. Fed me, clothed me, healed my wounds. It was amazing enough that Sokka found me when he did. But I'd never have survived without the tribe's care. Zuko doesn't want to hear about that. He doesn't want to picture her bleeding or weak, shivering or worse, fatally still. Images of that ilk have been the fodder of his nightmares for over two months. He does not need to hear his imaginings be confirmed. But he looks at her, alive and whole, and finds the courage to ask. How bad was it? Frostbite was the bulk of it. My limbs were like wax. Lifeless. There was fever, too. It took a week before I was well enough to understand where I was. Afterwards. She lowers her hand. Zuko watches her fingers curl loosely against her side and fights the urge to reach out and touch. Grand Grand said it was the fastest healing she'd ever seen in anybody. I don't know. Maybe it's a waterbender thing, but... She tightens her lips, looking away. Zuko knows this expression. But... What's wrong? Nothing. He knows this stubbornness, too. Katara... It's nothing. Despite the sharpness of the word, it is her face that bears the hurt. Nothing matters at this point. Just let it go. He can't. Not even to save himself could Zuko let go of this. Do you want to go back? The shock on her face is plain, naked, freezing her eyes and mouth. It transforms her face into that of a child, vulnerable, a face Zuko remembers studying often during his younger years. Of all the mysteries collected in Uncle Iroh's house, the curios and the stories and the dreams born of them, of all the strange examples of the unknown Zuko has encountered on land and sea, Katara remains the most baffling. I can't. I can't. I couldn't go back. I don't belong there. Not now. There isn't any place for me. Suddenly agitated, she turns back towards him, Emotions are rolling a storm across her face. Nothing's like it was before. Everything's changed. Been changed. It's different, and I'm the only one who sees it like that, because everyone else was part of the change. And you know what the worst part is, Zuko? Zuko. No title, no hesitation. When was the last time he heard his name released so freely, 
and yet without such aversion. He hears new tones in her pronunciation of it. But the change has nothing to do with the sound, of course. I recognized everything. Everything. I recognized the lacings on the tent flap, the etching on the lamp pot, the bone handle of the knife during dinner. Momentarily, a hand flies to her throat, overshadowing a stony glint of blue, and the fiercer blue of her eyes demands his full attention. I recognize the smell of stewed prunes, the glossy feel of salve, the snowball games, the bedtime songs. I recognize how it all worked, how they do things, how they live. But it wasn't the same, was it, Katara? Beneath the familiar was a world of unknown information, and even though you knew, you expected, the foreign depths were still there. You weren't ready for them. Things changed in your absence. You returned to a new world. It is wrong, Zuko knows, to feel relief at her words. Even worse, to feel joy because of them, but joy unsheaths its claws inside him nonetheless. She does not belong there with the cold and the endless whiteness. She belongs here. It's strange, isn't it? Katara puts her palm against a wall, turning away again. To think of a ship as a place, instead of what it is. A way to reach a destination. Personally, that's something Zuko tries to avoid thinking about. How much did you hate having to come on it? I was scared. Her palm slides down the metal, then abruptly falls back to her side. Too little space. Too many people I didn't know, let alone trust. And there was so much water. Everywhere, without end. It's one thing swirling tea in a teacup. It's another thing when there's enough water to rival the sky. That's... I, I can't understand that. I know. And I wouldn't ask you to. It's just the way it was then. And well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're all each other in the end, I suppose. You didn't burn my name? Her tone is casual, exhibiting no noticeable interest in the subject. Disconcerting considering the subject is that of her own funeral. Having no body, the most honorable option available would have been to take Katara's name, written out by her closest kin, Iroh, and burn it to give her spirit a smoke trail to follow into heaven. Uncle Iroh approached him with the suggestion two weeks after her disappearance. He was not wrong to do so. I forbade the ceremony. It wouldn't have been the right thing to do. It was 
Too soon. How long would you have waited? I don't know. Longer. A season, then? That's how long they, my tribe, <laughs> waited before declaring me dead. One season. Summer. And then they gathered my toys and beads to wrap into a parka. My parka. And threw it in the water. I think I'd rather have my spirit follow smoke into the air than have it rambling around under the ice. Though it must be interesting, don't you think? To explore the world underwater? Don't. Saying things like that is bad luck. You shouldn't talk about it. Why not? It's my death. Doesn't that mean I have the right to discuss it? Emotion flashes in the blue of her eyes, anger or pain, and the invisible walls around her trembled. Especially since nobody else would. The whole tribe, everyone, not a single one of them would say a word about what happened. It was like I'd broken a rule by returning to them and the silence was a punishment. Or worse, like my being there wasn't real. That if anyone dared to point out the presence of a ghost among them, she'd just disappear. My grandmother was the only person who mentioned my mother's name out loud around me. And I can count on one hand the number of times she did it. Even Sokka. He told me to forget about it. As if half my life was something to spit out in the snow and walk away from. Then what is it to you? He wants to ask. She's lived in the Fire Nation for half her life, but how much of her heart, her mind, resides with people who are not her own? With Iroh? With him? But the price of asking this is not something Zuko is ready to pay. It would have gotten better. Whatever anxiety they felt towards your arrival would have abated in time, Katara. Maybe you can't imagine what it's like to have someone important to you simply pop back into existence, but... But I can. His skin remembers the sting of the snowball. It's like having the world disappear from under your feet. The tribe, your grandmother and brother, they just needed more time to accept what happened. Eventually things would have returned to normal. Things would have never returned to normal. The finality of the statement surprises Zuko. He feels her words stare at something hot and desperate inside his chest. Sometimes there's no going back. No matter what kind of miracle you find among the ice. Suddenly, Zuko wishes they were outside, on the deck, or on land. Anywhere that had a high sky of stars full above them. He wants space. The room around them is too small to contain the rising tide of agitation beginning in his lungs and stomach. Katara's words have always had the power to render him undone. 
A one-line riddle could trap his mind for a week. A five-minute argument could haunt his temper for a month. And a two-word apology could transmute his anger into simple air. This time, hearing her is stirring up fears and hopes he's been spending two years trying not to name. The phantom sting on his cheek is changing into a blister. He closes his eyes against the memory and opens them again when a cool hand touches his. Katara looks up at him, mouth closed but soul open, and the fingertips on his knuckles press down just a little. Just enough. The fear recedes and he stares at her, unsure of how to define the expression he feels forming on his face. What if... The hand drops away. What if... what? Talk to me. What if today was the first time we met? Zuko blinks. Katara continues, not looking at him. If the ship broke through the ice and you came down and I looked up, and that would be the first time we ever saw each other, how different would it be? Would we recognize each other as anything besides fire and water? Would you recognize me? What a strange thing to ask. What a strange, perplexing, amazing thing to ask. And yet, how very like Katara to ask it. It's impossible. How could we be expected to recognize each other as anything except... Different. The fingers of his right hand, the one she touched, curl slowly. Will we be strangers? She nods. The acquiescence is oddly disappointing. Strangers. You're right. It was an infantile thing to ask. Sorry. Master Iroh likes reminding me about truth being stranger than fiction. But did you ever wonder at how right he is about that? The two of us? We don't make any sense. A prince with the chance to rule the world and a girl born in a house with a dirt floor? It's ridiculous. How is it that we're friends? Maybe it's fate. She blinks. Zuko continues, not looking away from her. Maybe fate saw a prince barely lucky enough to be born and brought a blue-eyed moon girl to pull him out of a garden pond. Maybe it put a brush in her hand to teach him something important about the unexpected things in the world. Maybe it called her to his door during the worst time of his life to yell like an ill-bred fishwife remind him to be strong. Maybe he cursed every drop of water in the sea when she was gone, and maybe he thanked every star when she returned. Maybe, sometimes, fate is kind. I don't think it knows how. Things happen because they're there to happen, and there's no pattern, no reason for 
I'm sorry. I'm tired. Sorry. And you don't even believe in fate. <laughs> Tonight, I'm willing to believe in anything. Tomorrow? Tomorrow, we go back to chasing fairy tales and empty rumors around the world. He turns to stare out the window, seeing moonlight but not its source. Tomorrow, we search for the Avatar. A tug of material at his wrist makes him realize she's grabbed his sleeve, holding the edge of it like a child. I'm not sorry I met you. He glances at her and is surprised to see no serenity in Katara's expression. Instead, her face is full of shaking, anxious lines, and her eyes shine wetly. I'm not. I swear by it. By, by my honor. By whatever you trust. I'm not sorry. I've never been sorry. Not for that. You have to believe me. Please, you have to believe it. Even if, if one day something happens, if I do something, something terrible, to make you think otherwise, don't. Please. She's trembling. Zuko feels the tremors when he puts a hand on Katara's shoulder to calm her, not understanding. Katara, why? What are you talking about? I I'd never expect you to... Listen, there's no need to ask something like that. It's all right. Katara? Katara. Please don't. Even if what I do is really awful and ugly and hurts everyone, hurts you, I don't, wouldn't, wouldn't mean it like that. Not like that, Zuko. Not to hurt anyone. Zuko lays a hand against her hair, too disturbed by the grief in her voice to worry about the intimacy of the contact. Seeing Katara come apart like this, without knowing why or how to fix it, is scattering his mind. It's panic, shock, a post-traumatic overload of stress and whatever. Zuko doesn't care about the label, he only wants her tears to stop. Katara, it's, it's all right. You don't have to worry about anything like that. Really, please, don't... Please don't cry. A sob chokes her stumbling words, and Zuko breaks. He takes the next step without thinking of what may follow it and wraps both arms around her. Katara collapses into the hold without hesitation, easy as gravity or the fall of rain. Shh. <sighs> It's it's okay, I promise. Just just let it out. Don't fight it. You're you're going to be okay. Let it out. His left palm rests on her shoulder blade, covering it completely. The flesh feels mattingly fragile to him, like he could break through the bone without even trying. Zuko is used to thinking of Katara as undersized, but holding her this close Closer than he has ever held anyone, closer than he can ever remember being held, is teaching him how small the girl really is. Not in height, but in the built and breadth of her, the slimness of her neck and wrists, the hollow of her throat and the flow of her back.
the curve of her cheek against his chest. How could such a little thing have so much to love about it? I could never hate you. It doesn't matter what we argue about or what happens. You're not... You're... I missed you. You have no idea what went through my head while you were gone. I kept thinking of what happened, and I kept trying to hope, except you weren't around to show me how. So I walked around like a fool and hurt like hell. Did you know I went into your room and counted every needle you had? There were nine and two broken ones. I counted twice. I don't know why I did it, but I couldn't stay away, couldn't sleep, knowing you were... You were... You... Not letting go, he tries to steer her into sitting down, but Katara resists and pushes away just enough to look up at him. The delicate skin around her eyes is turning puffy and will only look worse later, but the wet blue is stunning. You're the reason I'm here. Zuko isn't sure what it means, but it sounds like a confession. He kisses her. Zuko has never, in all his sixteen years, kissed anyone in a way that meant anything, and neither can he remember ever wanting to. Except maybe that's not exactly true, because kissing Katara feels like answering a call, or maybe simply actually listening to it for the first time. One hand automatically goes to the back of her head, trying to lend some stability to the deed. The other hand stays laid out across her shoulders, noticing that the tremors are still. The kiss is a contact venturing no further than the skin of his lips and hers. A chaste press despite the lightning Zuko's mind attaches to the sensation. But this is not important. The fact that Katara doesn't pull away, instead leaning in, is. Zuko pulls away first vaguely aware of holding his breath throughout the whole endeavor. Likewise, Katara exhales. The puff of warm air briefly skims the edge of Zuko's cheek. He tries to speak around the pulse in his throat. Katara, trust me when I say that I could never hate you. I can't. I missed you. I missed you so much. I tried not to, but it was like thinking the moon was never coming back. I'd sit out in the cold, staring at the water, and it felt wrong. None of it would have happened if I had just stayed below deck during the storm. I'm sorry. Everything that happened while I was gone, all it caused... Ugh. I'm sorry for hurting you. Katara. Katara, look at me. You helped protect the ship and everyone on it. You saved me. <laughs> Again. Actually, that seems to be something of a pattern with you. <laughs> Old habit. I get paranoid every time I see you on a bridge or near water. She blinks, sniffling, 
and then peels an arm from his waist to rub the heel of her hand against her eyes. What a mess. Waterbenders. Soppy to the last. I'm surprised it took me this long to start leaking. Zuko thumbs the curve of her cheek, and Katara's hand falls away. Stronger than she looks, our little fish. Stronger than the moon. Zuko? Again, the lack of title. Again, he doesn't mind. Can I? Yes. She swallows. His eyes translate the jump and the fall of it in the motion of her throat. Can I stay here tonight? If only for a little while. Can I stay? With you? Afraid of bad dreams? That's not it. Not anymore. Katara's gaze is steady, brave, sincere. I want to stay. This could be a mistake. This could be a dream. This could be a chance that will never pass this close again. This could be worth it all. I want you to stay. The bed is small. But then he notes again, so is Katara. Zuko lays back on it, fully dressed, while Katara toes off her boots. The angle has her at his blind side, a blurred shape of dim blue and white. Zuko closes his eyes to give his mind a chance to dive deep and bury this moment, him and her, safely in his memory. Tomorrow, the world. But tonight he is a believer, a child in the dark, feeling her weight settle on the bed beside him. When she curls, not facing him, but staying closer than the bed size demands. Zuko drapes his arm across her middle to feel the rise and drop of her breath. Do you want me to leave the lamps burning? I like the glow. Do you mind? No. He closes his eyes. I don't mind at all. Dream sweet. She doesn't speak, but fingertips settle on the hand at her side. He feels the pressure of the touch sink to the core of him. There is something telling, perhaps, in falling asleep with a fire flag at your back and a water girl in your arms. But Zuko isn't thinking about it. Instead, he listens to the lullaby of Katara's breathing and is almost happy. He wakes up alone. Zuko blinks against the room's soft darkness, unseeing yet solidly convinced of something being out of place. He sits up, confused, 
and one hand touches the edge of a neatly folded blanket. It is cool and yielding under his touch, its corners in perfect order. How like her, he thinks and almost smiles. Katara's absence does not disturb him. Though a tiny patch of Zuko's mind dallies briefly with the fantasy of waking up to river eyes and maple skin and the smile that won't reject him. Undoubtedly, she has returned to her own room and bed, as is proper. He will see her in the morning. Zuko's internal clock announces such a meeting to only be a few hours away. Though, it's possible Katara will sleep in. She has, after all, been through a lot. Yes, let her rest, and upon rising, step out to find her old life ready to welcome her. Zuko can easily predict what kind of welcome the morning will bring. The night of Katara's return was smothered with astonishment, happy, but too shocked to be truly inviting. It was simply too unbelievable. But soon, given time between the morning and the miracle, everyone will accept what has happened and celebrate sincerely. No doubt there will be red and white dumplings at breakfast, her favorite, and a pie show marathon at dinner. Already he can hear the bustle of the coming music night. For a moment, Zuko actually regrets not having access to the musical instruments he's educated in. Not the sungi horn, but a flute would do. Then again, perhaps the instruments would only serve as an unwanted distraction. They could dance instead, Zuko decides. Not realizing the smile threatening his face finally opened its curves and happened? Yes, they will dance together while the firelight flirts with the gold in her hair, and he will oversee her waterbending practice openly, and... Why did she come back? The question pierces his daydreaming, a sudden flash of lightning illuminating cliffs of doubt and the precipice they guard. Zuko pauses, hand on the folded blanket, feeling again the off-key slant which assaulted him upon first seeing her face alive and outlined by fur. The vertigo passes quickly, but he cannot erase the whispering echo of its suspicion. She'd said, I don't belong there. And there isn't any place for me. The guilty joy Zuko felt at the confession returns, but now it twists uncomfortably inside his thoughts. At fourteen, he knows her life experience is equally divided between water and fire, and she cannot belong entirely to either. From the moment they met, Katara's difference has been Zuko's most constant companion. It defined her, foreign, as his defined him. To the eyes of the Fire Nation, they stood outside the ordinary, living without a way to overcome the boundaries their heritages bestowed. Zuko was never more aware of the rigidity of his position than when together with his clever, blue-eyed friend. Yet her company was among the most special. Unique. With Katara, formality and convention couldn't be trusted for guidance. The things that Tezuko were inherent, indisputable, transmuted in her brown hands. Practicing calligraphy, copying history anew, 
How many times did Zuko have to remind himself that the girl at his side viewed all he knew, all he was, with a mind not born of the sun? Even more than coloring and circumstance, Katara stood apart from his people because of her heart's origins and reasoning. Always he had believed her difference, like his own, was inborn, unchangeable. In the Fire Nation, you are what you are meant to do, from the first breath to the last. It is the makings of your honor. It is the rules of your place. It is the nature of your fate. But what if there's more? Somewhere, someone. How much can the world change if we make the choice to let it? Once upon a more innocent time... Zuko believed in change. He had believed the courage to take a stand guaranteed its success, providing one acted with honor. Now Zuko only believes in what he must do. Standing up, hands straightening his cue and robes, Zuko walks towards the door and out of the room. Outside, the ship is quiet but not silent. Small noises cross the warm, still air, murmuring evidence of power and movement and heat. Ships, he has learned, have a language of their own. Zuko rests his hand against one iron wall to feel the hum of movement underneath, an echo of the engine's roar, unexpectedly reassured by the metal kissing his palm. It is a good ship, it will get them to where they need to be. Only, where do they go from here? Iroh's room isn't far, but Zuko walks slowly, thinking about how to begin a conversation filled with questions he's not sure how to ask. Getting his uncle's advice on this matter will be odd. Uncomfortably, Zuko wonders if Iroh will scold him for the timing the circumstances, the broken protocol. Proper etiquette states a man should approach the woman's family before beginning courtship, declaring his intentions clearly and asking for permission. At the dawn of adolescence, Zuko understood that the design of his romances, voluntarily or otherwise, would curve to a different pattern. A prince's heart is servant to necessity, he knew, even then, young and green, watching silky women vanish behind Seraglio gates, that his pleasure would always be shadowed by the responsibility of his position. Which is not to say that certain liberties would not occur, Iroh had informed his nephew during one of the man's saltier moments. Every life has its surprises, and a strong man will hold out his hand without fear. Zuko wonders if any of it justifies kissing your best friend. Probably not. She didn't move away. She could have, of course. He isn't victim to the idea of Katara's actions being a type of obedience, of submission, regardless of how much confusion Zuko's digesting. He can, in the brief span of a single breath, list a library of incidents describing Katara's immunity to authority. Especially his. Irresistibly, behind his eyes, the record unrolls. 
She has acted against his orders, sneaked behind his back, shouted over his arguments, seen through his excuses, and generally spent the majority of their friendship darting to the right and left of him. Somehow, no matter how much silk or seawater around her, Katara has always managed to find her own way. A useful, if exasperating, quality in the girl you're trusting fate to keep by your side. The silent mention of fate stirs clouds of nervousness. Zuko quickens his step. Yes, fate brought a girl into a garden in time to watch a boy get pitched into a pond by clumsiness and stupidity. But seven years later, fate washed her away and left him with broken ribs and a scrap of silk. Zuko does not cherish the notion of trusting important matters solely to fate. His search for the Avatar, for example, its success will come through sweat, not luck. Fortune is fickle, deceiving. The gold it buys your heart with can turn to leaves in the morning. Too much luck inspires laziness and weakness while too little spins greed into bitterness. No, Zuko doesn't need luck, nor does he want it. But it would be nice, he thinks, to hear a little reassurance. A few warm words to settle his stomach. Hell, he'll even listen to whatever proverbs Uncle has for the occasion, and there has to be at least one. Uncle Iroh's door opens easily. In fact... Zuko suspects the man forgot to close it before retiring to bed. Strange, but then perhaps his uncle had other things on his mind. The ghostly scent of ginseng lingering inside informs Zuko about what sort of things that may be. Did she sit with Iroh before coming to him? Or was the visit more recent? Does it matter? No. Zuko decides, and puts a hand on his uncle's shoulder. There is no response. Iroh's breathing is deep and flat, and Zuko's gentle shake elicits nothing, not even a twitch. He shakes harder, calling his uncle's name sternly. Iroh continues to sleep, unresponsive, and Zuko feels something wary raise its head inside his thoughts. Uncle Iroh is a sturdy sleeper, yes, but not... Something is wrong. Again, he notices the aroma of tea, wondering at how strong she brewed the mixture to have it last this long. It is then that Zuko notices a recognizable, dense sweetness in the air, his hazy suspicions overlapped by her face. Eyes urgent, he scans the room for familiar evidence, the cups and kettle are damnably easy to spot. Zuko picks up a teacup, its blue design misleadingly dark in the dimness of the room, and notes its dryness. The second cup, however, still harbors a wet shine from use. Next to it, he sees the scroll. Zuko breaks the seal without hesitation, pulse rushing but hand steady. The parchment unrolls easily. At its end, two treasures clatter to the table with a wink of gold. Ironically, he recognizes the paintbrush before the hairpin. But then, it is her favorite brush. His memories of her are more often mixed with ink than metal. Breath frozen, Zuko touches first one object, 
than the other. The tip of the brush is dark, still damp. The hairpin is tipped with blood. He stares at the two, uncomprehending, until he turns his attention to the scroll. Its creamy surface is mostly bare, fresh and harmless, save for the few black characters written in the paper's center, and the tiny red fingerprint, like a seal below the word. One word. You didn't burn my name. The scroll falls from his hands. Zuko does not pause to see where it lands. He runs. Out of his uncle's room and into the hall, through the hall and down the stairs, towards where? Where would she go? Somewhere from within, there breathes an ugly answer, and Zuko runs faster, hiding behind his pulse. It is hard. Harder still, when halfway to the exit, he stumbles across the bodies of two guards sleeping. A half-empty bottle lies close. Zuko doesn't have to pick it up to know that its wine carries the same thick glimmer of sweetness used in his uncle's tea. What else? The food? More wine? More tea? The drinking water, maybe? She has, he knows, enough of the sleeping drug to ward off a year of nightmares, and access to every cup and pot aboard. The quietness of the ship closes a fist around Zuko's heart. It speaks of what he fears to think. Ice blocks the deck's exit. Zuko blazes it open, passing through water and steam into the pre-dawn light outside. She is small, a bold mark against the horizon. Even cocooned in the bulky parka, Katara looks undersized, diminished rather than enhanced. Fur hood down, her face is rendered translucent by the cool early light. The expression she turns to Zuko is incomplete. Not quite surprise, and not quite fear, but somehow it turns the short distance between them into a gulf. When he takes a step forward, she takes one back, and Zuko stops. Then he sees the boy. He looks eleven, maybe a year more, maybe less. The vibrant orange and yellow of his clothes resemble nothing Zuko remembers seeing among the Water Tribe villagers. Nor are his eyes blue. The only blue he has is in the arrow painted down his bald head. Zuko's blood quickens, heating at the sight of that tattoo and the long wooden staff in the boy's hands. There's no fear in the youngster's face, no alarm in the innocent gray gaze inspecting Zuko. There is nothing to indicate recognition or forewarning. Who's he, Katara? Zuko! His name comes from her like a breath, empty and vital. She stands close to the boy, too close, but it is the prince she talks to. Zuko, please, don't. He's not what you think. Confused, the boy blinks at her and then looks at Zuko as if for explanation. Zuko has none to give. Instead, he asks the boy, Who are you? I'm Aang. 
Hey, what's wrong? Katara, what's going on? Both look towards the waterbender between them, but she speaks to Zuko. He's just a child. Can't you see? All this time, he wasn't hiding. He was lost. We, Sokka and I found him when we, in the ice. He was stuck there, frozen. He's been there, I mean. We think he was trapped there the entire time. A hundred years. Her words are fast, desperate, and her eyes beseech him. We were wrong about him. Everything we read, the stories, the legends, the rumors, everything we predicted. We were wrong about him. Do you understand? He does. Zuko stares at the boy with the air marks on his skin, the naive gray eyes, and the open expression, the lack of apprehension in the young, light body, and sees every theory composed in the past two years crumble into ruin. The Prince of the Fire Nation stares at this child, this impossible, unbelievable fucking child, and knows it changes nothing. Fire lances out towards Katara, but falling short of actually hitting her. Ah! She stumbles back with a cry, and it is enough. Zuko's next shot is aimed directly at the boy. His hands weave together the next blow, even as the boy, the airbender, dodges the first by launching himself impossibly upward, as if weightless. He lands farther away, the movement effortless with grace, a gust of wind ruffling his bright clothes like a loving hand. A thin wall of water rises and falls between them, its maker stepping into its place with her arms spread. Zuko recognizes the look on her face. Don't. Move. She doesn't. Move, Katara. He's the one, the Avatar. Now get out of the way. That's a damn order, do you understand? I won't let you take him. The words are devastatingly pure, her sincerity insurmountable. He wants to rip them out of the air, wrest them apart, and throw the grizzled remains into the deepest part of the Arctic waters. He wants to grab her shoulders, shake until the lunacy flies out of her head, and never remember this moment again. He wants to scream till his throat is raw from it. He wants to hit the boy. He wants the moment to be anything except what it is. He doesn't want this. Step aside, Katara. It's over. Do you understand? This is it. He's the Avatar. What we've spent the past two years hunting, the whole damn miserable quest, is finally over. No more chasing, no more running from horizon to horizon after centuries-stale rumors and anecdotes. No more of everything these two years have been. It ends with him, Katara. It ends now. I can go home. Things will return to normal. Things will never return to normal. 
Gone is the unsteadiness of her earlier expression. In its place is rage and searing conviction. Home is gone. It vanished the day a father condemned his loyal son for speaking the truth nobody else would. Everything that's happened to you, to me, to the whole damn world, nothing anyone does will change that. You're right. This has to end now. Don't you see? Now it can. The Avatar can restore the balance. He can bring back the way things used to be. The way they should be. The steel in her voice cracks, revealing the desperation underneath. He's the only one who can do it. The only one who can stop the terrible things being done. Tell me what'll happen if you put him in chains and bring him to the Fire Lord. Tell me it'll stop the killings. Tell me it'll mean no more mothers crying over undue graves. Tell me no more houses will burn in the night. Tell me no more children will scream. Tell me the snow will never be red or black ever again. Tell me no more soldiers will surrender their lives to a heartless plan that they don't even know about. Tell me that the war will end in this lifetime. Tell me! Zuko cannot. For as long as he lives, Zuko knows he will remember this. The muted hush of the ocean, the cold grays of the air on his skin, the passion and pleading in the face he knows best, the gray-eyed child almost within reach, the throbbing helplessness in his chest, the nearly imperceptible sway of the ship, the girl standing between him and the Avatar, his most surprising ally, his favorite kind-eyed riddle, his best friend. Katara, get out of my way. They find him a few hours later, sprawled on the deck with a bruise on the back of his head. Apparently, the clumsy backwater peasant's aim is better the second time around. Zuko is unsure whether it was luck, or mercy, or ineptitude, that kept the blow from doing more damage than it did. Sitting still under the ship doctor's questioning hands, Zuko tells about the Avatar, the flying bison, the airbending that stalled their ship in snow, the tribesman boy who attacked from the back. He tells about the direction the Avatar is likely to head in, and the route they'll be taking to follow him. He does not tell about how, in the last moment before unconsciousness sank him, a gentle hand touched his ruined face, and she said, I'm sorry. It's a story. Impossible things are easier in stories, I think. So, when the moon was crying, the Avatar said, Don't despair. Love does not depend on distance or time. 
I will give you something more powerful than death or duty, something stronger than dreams or memory. I will give you hope. Thank you for reading this fan-made, abridged version of Tempest in a Teacup by A.K.A. Vertigo. Katara was voiced by me, Doodle Lady. Iroh and Zuko are voiced by me, Ride Boldly Ride. Sokka was voiced by me, Sam Kanak. The narrator and Aang were played by me, Bulletproof Teacup. I also completed scripting and casting, while audio and sound effects were developed by Ride Boldly Ride. Visual effects and social media were developed by Doodle Lady. We have so enjoyed turning this wonderful story into an audiobook for your listening enjoyment. If you've enjoyed this recording, we hope you will continue listening to our monthly podcast, The Jasmine Dragon Tea Hour, and maybe even join us on our next serial, Half Asleep by Crushinator. Thank you for listening.